Thank you for joining IRW Coffee Break. This is a podcast series hosted by KPMG IRW specialists within the Washington National Tax Practice to discuss current topics in the field of information reporting and withholding. Every episode will discuss a discrete area of interest in a brief segment. So we invite you to grab a cup of coffee or just get comfortable while we explore all things IRW. Hi, I'm Danielle Nishida, and I'm here with Lori Hatton-Boyd. In our last couple of podcasts, we are flipping the script somewhat to shift our focus from providing guidance to withholding agents to instead providing guidance to the payees and account holders that are required to complete documentation for those withholding agents. Therefore, in this podcast, instead of talking about how to validate a Form W-8, we're going to talk instead about how to complete a Form W-8. For our listeners who are withholding agents, we welcome you to listen to this podcast as a refresher on the basic Form W-8 rules. But more importantly, you can refer your customers to this podcast when they're in need of a tutorial on completing the Forms W-8 that you're asking them to provide to you. This particular podcast will focus on the completion of forms for entities. So we'll walk through how to determine which form an entity should select, and then we'll walk through the completion of the most common form used by entities, the Form W-8-BEN-E. So there's really four forms that an entity might be providing to a withholding agent. There's the W-8-BEN-E. That's the form where the entity is certifying that it is non-US, it is the beneficial owner of the income, and they're able to claim a treaty benefit if they're so entitled. The W-8-ECI, ECI stands for Effectively Connected Income. Here the entity is certifying that it's non-US, Again, it's the beneficial owner of the income and that the income is effectively connected with its U.S. trader business. The third form is the W-8-EXP. This would be provided by a non-U.S. government or a non-U.S. tax exempt. They would be claiming a zero rate under either 501c3 for the tax exempt or Section 892 for the government. And then finally, the form W-8-IMY, IMY standing for intermediary. This is a certification that the person is non-U.S. They are not the beneficial owner of the income. Instead, they're receiving that income on behalf of somebody else. As Daniel said, we're going to focus on the W-8-BEN-E today. I just wanted to point out that there's two situations where we might see a Chapter 3 status on the BEN-E for an entity that actually isn't the beneficial owner where we would normally then otherwise expect that W-8-IMY that I just talked about. And that would be if the entity is a flow-through entity, but it's a hybrid claiming treaty benefits. And Daniel will talk about how that is done on the form. And then also the instructions to the W-8-BEN-E provide that if the entity is not receiving U.S. source income, but instead needs to document its Chapter 4 status for an account outside the U.S., that it could use the W-8-BEN-E to do so, even though it is a flow-through entity. Okay, so let's shift to the Form W-8-BEN-E itself. And obviously, this is a podcast, so we can't show you the form, but we do recommend if you're completing a Form W-8-BEN-E to follow along because we're going to walk through this form line by line. And I will note that we are not going to cover every detailed, nuanced rule because that would be a really long podcast, but we're going to cover the general rules. And so there are going to be cases where there's weird exceptions that will require you to fill out the form a different way. Or there may be exceptions to some of the things we're stating where you're not required to provide the information, but we're going to recommend the safest approach to try to get your form through as valid. So, for example, with respect to tax IDs, there may be cases where you're not required to complete that on the form because you fall within a limited exception. We're not going to walk through all those exceptions. We're generally just going to recommend that you complete it because it ensures that the form that you're providing is the most likely to be accepted as valid. 
So starting with line one, you're going to be entering the name of the organization that is the beneficial owner. This field should have a single name and should be the name that you use for tax reporting purposes. That's really important because the withholding agent is generally going to be issuing you a Form 1042-S in the name that you enter on line one. If that withholding agent has overwithheld upon you and you need to file a refund claim, you're going to want to attach that Form 1042-S to the refund claim that you make with the IRS, and therefore you're going to want that to be completed in the proper name. When we talk about funds, they often have really long names and they list various parts. Make sure you get everything in there because you want to be clear about who the beneficial owner is. We often also see this with trusts and in certain custodial relationships where the person completing the form will do something like trustee for the benefit of ABC Trust or custodian for the benefit of ABC Company. That is not how the line should be completed. There has to be a single name on this line. And so if you are a trustee or a custodian and you're completing the form on behalf of a fund or a trust, just enter the name of the fund or the trust on line one, and you will be completing the signature line at the end and certifying that you have capacity, but you want to list just the entity that's the beneficial owner. Now, the one exception to this rule is there are certain countries and certain entities where when they complete their formation documents, they will actually have A for the benefit of B as the name of the entity. And when that entity files returns with their government or with the IRS, they will file the returns in the name of A for the benefit of B. Or when they go to get a GIN with the IRS, which applies for financial institutions, they'll actually register A for the benefit of B. Those are the only cases in which you should be entering that combo in line one, and you are likely going to have to provide the withholding agent with additional explanation and documentation to establish that that's a proper name, because that is not how this form should typically be completed. Moving on to line two, you're going to enter your country of incorporation or organization. Do not enter abbreviations here. Write out the full country name. And then line three is where you can enter the name of a disregarded entity receiving the payment. And this does get a little complicated because certain entities that are disregarded entities are going to enter the name in line three. Other entities that are disregarded are going to enter their name in the reference line on line 10. The entities that enter their name on line three are disregarded entities that are part of a foreign financial institution. And the reason for this is for FATCA purposes, every foreign financial institution is required to have its own unique identification number referred to as a GIN, where they register with the IRS under each branch location and get a separate GIN per branch. And so line three is identifying that this disregarded entity or this branch has its own GIN and will be completing that information in part two. And that's solely what this line is for. In all other cases, if you have a disregarded entity that needs to be identified, the disregarded entity doesn't go on line one, it doesn't really belong on line three because it's not a financial institution, although we often see people accidentally put it in line three and usually that's not a problem. But technically, in all other cases where we're not talking about a financial institution, that disregarded entity would enter its name on the reference line on line 10 and then put in parentheses disregarded entity. And that's how the withholding agent will know that if you've opened the account in the name of the disregarded entity, they'll be able to associate this form filled out in the name of the parent entity with the account that they've got in the disregarded entity's name. Line four is where you're going to enter your chapter three status or your entity type. And this field refers to your entity type for U.S. tax purposes. 
So it doesn't matter if you're a regarded corporation locally, if you are treated, for example, as a partnership for U.S. tax purposes, you're going to be selecting partnership on this field. Now, as Lori said, there are very limited cases in which a flow-through entity, meaning a partnership, a simple trust, a grantor trust, or a disregarded entity, should be completing a Form W-8-BEN-E. The two cases may be that they're providing this form offshore strictly for FATCA purposes. They're not receiving any U.S. source income. Then it's possible that they can complete the name in the name of the flow-through entity or in the name of the disregarded entity, and they can select that box on line four, or they can just leave this field blank. The other common scenario is when that entity, even though they're treated as a flow-through or disregarded for U.S. tax purposes, they are a regarded entity in their local jurisdiction, and they're eligible for treaty relief under that treaty between their local jurisdiction and the United States. When that happens, the only way for them to make a treaty claim is to complete the Form W at Benny. And so that's a common scenario where you see a partnership, simple trust, grantor trust, or disregarded entity completing this form. And when that occurs, they're going to select the box with their status, and they have to enter underneath the checkboxes. There's a separate question that says, if you enter disregarded entity, partnership, simple trust, or grantor trust above, is the entity a hybrid making a treaty claim? you're going to need to answer yes to that. If you don't check that yes box, your form is automatically invalid. I will also caution you that if you are providing this form for one of those hybrid entities that is treated as a flow through for U.S. tax purposes, but is regarded locally, you can use the form W at Ben E to get treaty benefits. But if you're receiving a form that's in scope for FATCA purposes, which is generally referring to U.S. source income of a financial nature, such as interest and dividends, for FATCA purposes, you're going to actually need to complete the W8IMY as well, because this form will only be used for treaty purposes and only for Chapter 3 and for NRA withholding. It won't apply for FATCA purposes, so your treaty claim won't matter, because if you don't have the IMY as well, with all of the information regarding the various owners of the entity, you're going to get hit with 30% FATCA withholding, and it would negate the whole benefit of having treaty relief. So it's really important for hybrid entities to make sure that if they're receiving these U.S. source financial type payments, that they're providing both the BEN-E with the treaty claim and the Form IMY with the associated documents that are required on the Form W-8IMY. And then we'll shift next to line five. Unfortunately, line five is the hardest part of the form, and it's not about which box to check. If you know what your FATCA status is, it's really straightforward. You select your FATCA status. Next to that status, there's often a statement that says complete part X, and you're going to go to that part of the form, and you're going to make the required certifications in that part. If the, your status doesn't indicate that, so for example, a participating FFI, there's nothing next to it tell, referring you to another part, that means you don't need to complete all of those additional certifications that you see on pages two through seven of the form. The tricky part is not figuring out the checkboxes and making the required certifications. The tricky part is figuring out what your FACA status is. And I will say that that is a really big conversation that we can't cover in a podcast, but that's something that if you don't know what that is, you should be going to your advisor and getting advice on this because it's a really technical process. And that's one of the harder things, in fact, is determining your status. So this field is mandatory if you're receiving payments that are in scope for FACA purposes. It is important that you talk to your advisor, figure out what your status is, and then select just one status on this line. 
If you are receiving payments that are not in scope for FATCA purposes, you can leave this field blank. Um, you have to be comfortable that you're not receiving withholdable payments, which are those U.S. source financial type payments I just talked about. You can either leave the field blank in that case, or at the very bottom of this field, there's an option that says account that is not a financial account. Technically, that's for a limited number of financial accounts that are excluded from the definition. It refers to things like IRAs or escrow accounts. But if I were completing the form and I knew I was not receiving a financial payment, so for example, I was receiving royalties or rents, I would probably select that box and just indicate next to that field, not receiving withholdable payments. You could also write that in the reference line. And then line six is a required field. It requires you to enter your permanent residence address. This should be the physical address that your business is registered at. You should not be using a PO box or a care of address unless you've got a PO box that is actually your registered address. So we do see this happen, for example, in the Cayman Islands frequently where Entities aren't physically located there, but they do have registered addresses in the Cayman Islands and they're registered to a particular box number. Those are the limited cases where you can actually enter a box number in this line, but you're also going to need to attach a copy of your registration documents to establish that this box number is actually your registered address. Make sure that you enter everything, the address, the city, and the country, and you should not be abbreviating the country. Line seven allows you to enter a mailing address if you want your mail sent to a different address than what's listed in line six. It's not a required field, but I will note if you have a US address in either the permanent residence address field or the mailing address field, you're going to need to attach additional documentation, usually something like a articles of incorporation, the partnership formation documents or certificate of incorporation, or some other official document establishing that you really are a foreign entity despite having the US address. On line eight, you're going to be entering your U.S. tax identification number. If you don't have a U.S. tax identification number, then you can just leave this blank. There are many cases where you're not required to have a U.S. tax ID, but if you have one, we do recommend filling it in here. Because as we talked about earlier, if you are overwithheld on any payment, you're going to need that withholding agent to issue you a 1042S. And your refund process with the IRS is going to be substantially smoother and substantially faster if you've got a U.S. TIN on that form. And the way that that withholding agent is getting that U.S. TIN is from this form W8BEN-E. So we do recommend that if you've got a U.S. tax ID, you enter it here. It is also going to be required in some cases for treaty claims. On line 9A, it asks for your GIN. This strictly applies to financial institutions that have registered with the IRS and have gotten a 19-digit tax identification number that basically says they're compliant with FACA. If you have a GIN, you're going to need to enter it here because that withholding agent is going to be verifying that your GIN is still active on the IRS portal. And if they can't verify it, they're going to be withholding on you. So it is critical that financial institutions that have GIN enter them. If you don't have a GIN, then you leave this field blank. Lines 9B and 9C pertain to your foreign tax identification number. And this is the tax identification number that was issued to you by your local government in your country of residence. If you have a foreign tax identification number, you should be entering it in line B. If you don't have a foreign tax identification number, you're going to be checking line 9C. And that's basically certifying that you don't have a tax identification number because you're not required to have one by your local jurisdiction. 
So for example, the Cayman Islands and BVI don't issue tax ID numbers. So all residents from those jurisdictions can check this box to indicate that they're not required to have them. Again, there are limited cases where you don't need to fill in either field, but we recommend you do one or the other, either enter the tax ID or enter line 9C to ensure that your form's not treated as invalid. Line 10 is a reference line. We referred to this earlier when talking about the disregarded entity names, but it can also be used to provide additional information to the withholding agent to either validate the form properly or to tie this form to your account with that withholding agent. So for example, you often see account numbers entered into this field to indicate that this form should be used for the following account numbers. Any additional names you use that you may have registered as that are not your official name for tax reporting purposes, but are additional DBAs can be entered here. If you need more space than this line provides, you can also attach an attachment to the form. And then part two of the form only applies to financial institutions. And as we discussed when talking about line three, if the financial institution listed on part one is completing this form for an additional branch or an additional disregarded entity that has its own GIN, they're going to name that branch of DE in line three, and then they're going to be completing part two to provide all the information for the disregarded entity or the branch. So unlike part one, which strictly applies to the beneficial owner named on line one, Part two is going to apply to the branch or the disregarded entity that is actually receiving the payment. So on line 11, they're going to identify the FATCA status strictly for that branch or disregarded entity. They'll complete the address of the branch or disregarded entity in line 12. And then on line 13, they provide the GIN of that branch or disregarded entity. And typically, if you're completing part two, you're doing so because that branch or disregarded entity has its own GIN and you'll be identifying that in part 13. The exception would be if you're completing part two for a U.S. branch, U.S. branches don't get their own GIN, so they're not going to have to enter anything here. And then if the entity is entitled to treaty benefits, you're going to complete that claim in part three of this form. So line 14A, you're going to write in the country for which the entity is resident for treaty purposes. You're going to want to write the country out as opposed to abbreviations. So, for example, write out United Kingdom instead of putting UK. Line 14B, there's actually two checkboxes that are going to be required here. First, the first checkbox where um, the entity is certifying that it derives the income um, and meets the limitation on benefits article in the treaty. And then there's the second checkbox where the entity actually has to check which provision within the limitations on benefits article it meets. You'll note that for those treaties where there is no LOB provision, there's a special checkbox for that. And then also, if the provision is not listed here, this usually happens with pension trusts that have a specific article that's not within the limitation on benefits article, then you would check other and write in that specific article. So remember, two checkboxes uh, associated with 14B. Um, 14C, we don't see that very often, but if the entity is claiming treaty benefits on U.S. source dividends or interest from foreign entities that meet certain requirements, that checkbox is going to be required. And then line 15 is the special rates and conditions. And this line is going to be required anytime other than mere residency is required to claim the treaty benefits. So usually we're going to see this with the business profits claim, and that's because the business profits article also mandates that the income is not attributable to a U.S. trader business. So you're going to have to put in the article. It's usually Article 7. You would put in the 0% rate 
you'd put in the type of income and then you'd certify that the income is not attributable to a PE in the US. There's another place where we usually see this line required and that's where the article of the treaty actually has two rates for a particular type of income. We see this a lot with royalties. So if the treaty for which the entity is claiming residence has two different rates for different types of royalties, you're going to want to put in the particular article and paragraph for the type of royalty and then the rate. And just before I leave the treaty claim, as Daniel had indicated, if there's a U.S. address on the form, additional documentation is required. If there is a mailing address outside of the treaty country, you're going to be required to provide additional documentation to establish that the entity is actually resident. So, for example, a residency certificate. And then just moving on to all of the various FATCA certifications, Danielle had talked about the line five where you're certifying your chapter four, your FATCA status. Most of those have a corresponding certification and that's what these next pages are all about. So where there is that instruction to complete the additional section when you're in line five, you're gonna wanna go to that corresponding section. Just as Danielle said, you're only gonna be doing this for one. So you're going to pick your one FACA status, and then if there's a corresponding certification, you're just going to go to that one and no others and check that particular box. I'm not going to really go through any of these except for one that we seem to see a lot of consistent errors with, and that's the non-reporting IGA FFI. So this is a foreign financial institution that is listed in Annex 2 of its intergovernmental agreement as being a non-reporting FFI. So in this case, the FFI is going to want to go to Annex 2 of that intergovernmental agreement to determine which specific type of non-reporting FFI it is. And it's going to want to first check, is it a Model 1 or a Model 2 IGA? And then write in the specific type of non-reporting entity that it is. And that's important because we actually see a lot of entities write a general classification, so exempt beneficial owner. That's not your status. Yes, you might be an exempt beneficial owner, but there's categories of exempt beneficial owners, and you've got to identify the exact category. And that's why Lori says, go to the IGA, take the language from the IGA, and use that exact title. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then finally, the certifications. The certifications are in part 30. You don't want to cross out any of the certifications. If you cross out anything within that certification jurat, the form is invalid. So you, you want to make sure that you're certifying to all of these requisite certifications. Then you're going to sign the form, print name, and add the date, again, the convention, month, day, year. And then there's the checkbox where you're certifying that the person that's completing this form has the authority to do so. You have to check that box. If you miss that checkbox, the form is just invalid and there's just no way to cure that. So you've got to make sure that you check that box. And this is not an invitation to give your life story in addition to the checkbox. It is strictly a checkbox. Yes, I have the capacity. They are not asking for any further explanation as to why you have the capacity. They don't need to know necessarily that you are the general director of an entity that is serving as the trustee of this entity. It is your responsibility to make sure that you have capacity because you're signing under penalties of perjury that you have it. But once you've determined that you have capacity, they are not asking for any further information on that form other than checking the box. And the reason we're making this point is because a lot of people like to add an additional narrative on top of the checkbox 
And quite often you're going to add an additional narrative that will require you to attach additional certified documentation. And there's nothing wrong with that. If you want to provide the narrative, that's fine. But be prepared to provide additional proof in that case to establish that you really do have the status that you're representing on that form. That's a great point. And then finally, if you're providing this form more than 30 days after the time that a payment was made to you where there was a reduction in withholding, you're going to want to include an affidavit. The withholding agent may give you a form that already has this affidavit on the bottom, but basically it's a certification that the information on the form was true and correct back at the time the payment was made to you. You're going to want to put in the specific date for when that retroactive affidavit is supposed to apply, and there's going to be a separate signature and date for the affidavit. Just like the certifications on the form that are under penalties of perjury, the affidavit relating that form back to a prior period also must be under penalties of perjury. And with that, you should have the basics of how to complete a Form W-8-BEN-E. We hope this has been helpful to you. And if you have any suggestions or requests that we discuss other forms or topics, please let us know by hitting the feedback button on the podcast page. We thank you for listening to this episode of IRW Coffee Break.